Hello and welcome to the Health Disparities Podcast, our regular exploration of inclusion, diversity, equity, and allyship. A program of Movement is Life Caucus. I'm Rolf Taylor, series producer, and today I'm sharing hosting duties with my good friend, author, and fellow Movement is Life contributor, Frank McClellan, JD, Professor Emeritus at Temple University Beasley School of Law, in Philadelphia. Good to see you, Frank. Thanks so much, Rolf. I'm so happy to be here. And Frank's book, Healthcare and Human Dignity, is a must-read. It's uh, been discussed in a previous podcast from this series, actually way back in episode two. Yeah, that, that's that's quite a ways. I want to congratulate you, Rolf, as well as the Movement is Life team for the high-quality podcast that they presented. And today is going to be one of the highlights, I promise you. I've been looking forward to it because Dr. Johnson is someone I've admired and known for several years, many years, really, in professional capacity. And he brings a diverse, fascinating background to us that we want to share his perspectives on medicine and public health with with the audience that um, follows the podcast for Movement is Life. And Dr. Johnson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Frank, and, and way to raise the bar uh, <laughs> and the pressure, but it's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. Yeah, and I'm going to raise it more because I'm going to quickly run through for our listeners some of your background. I can't do all of it because it would take the whole podcast, but it's really a fascinating career that you've had. Um, you started out studying sciences at Morehouse College and then both medicine and public health at uh, John Hopkins practice as a clinician in pediatrics and were an associate professor at Temple. Yeah, I have to slide in there. I, I trained in pediatrics at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, a place that I'm forever, ever grateful, grateful to and proud of. What was the position you served in in New York um, before you became um, Secretary of Health in Pennsylvania? Um, I, I actually served a, a couple of positions in, in New York, kind of went in in a, uh, in a brand new position, just supporting uh, one of the deputy commissioners and left as medical director for the, the what was the Division of Family Health Services. Um, at that time, I think they completely reorganized since then, but that um, covered a lot of ground uh, in terms of the maternal and child health and, and family services there. And I know that you uh, served as Secretary of Health for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania for five years between 2003 and 2008. And then after that, um, returned to Temple. Um, University Health System as VP and Chief Medical Officer. And uh, actually, I, I think I, I knew of you before, but I met you during your years and tenure as Secretary of Health when you created an advisory committee to deal and address some of the issues of health equity. And um, I was lucky that you appointed me to serve in uh, as on that advisory committee. Um, and I'm going to ask you some more questions about that later. Um, I also understand you later became involved with um, correctional facilities and, and health of, of uh, persons who were incarcerated and on the side in your spare time, been a radio host for WRD <laughs> radio program, the only African-American owned and operated talk radio in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. That was a great time at WRD. Uh, owned and started owned and operated by a great man, Dr. Walter Lomax, who who instrumental in my um I think in my own personal and professional development as well and, and is still run by um his daughter and stays in the family. Yeah. 
And now, and and now you've um, assumed the position and the challenge of uh, being chief medical officer and executive vice uh, vice president at Royal Caribbean Group. Uh, when did you start that position? A year and uh, just about two months ago, in the midst of in the midst of this pandemic. Oh, that must have been a very peaceful beginning for you then, in terms of your responsibilities. It's been an amazing journey, and there has not been a dull moment. So I, I would like to go back and let you, in your own words, um, describe how your career first got directed toward both public health and medicine. We have a lot of um, audience members who uh, try to mentor young folks in high schools and colleges uh, about careers in health law. And you uniquely um, have done both in terms of both the medical degree and the master's degree. But did, did your parents influence you to start this path in high school? What, 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 how did the seed get planted to do both? Well, as, as usual, that's a, that's a great question, um, Frank. And uh, I think uh, absolutely my parents influenced me um, and, and directed me. I, I can't say that they directed me specifically into this, but, uh, but there's been no greater influence on me than, um, than my, my mother, my father, um, who I'm, I'm blessed to still have, um, still have with me to, today. I think it really all started for me in, with just that kind of service. I grew up in a in a house and a family where my parents, who were both kind of first generation professionals, uh, first generation college, um, but they they both went on to uh, graduate degrees, and they they took their kind of they both in their professional and personal lives. It was it was focused on um, service, and so I, I grew up seeing service personified. And so that was just a natural part of what I thought made, made sense. And, and, and so professionally, um, I think ways to, to serve was a part of the beginning. And for me, I, I, I learned that I enjoyed science and, um, and math and you know, found that I was pretty good with it. And then I got to a point where I, I really, um, yeah, I really wanted to know how to save a life, uh, and I can't remember exactly how that came about, but I knew I wanted to. I, I wanted to know how to save a life, and and so all that kind of combination of enjoying the sciences and and service and wanting to know certain things, kind of pointed me in the direction of um, of of medicine. And so you uh, first enrolled in terms of your education at, in Morehouse, one of the greatest uh, institutions we have in the country in terms of, of education and training of both undergraduates and medicine. How, how did you get steered toward or choose to go to, to Morehouse and what impact did that education experience have on you as a professional? Yeah, you know, Morehouse, I, I agree with your description of Morehouse, one of the greatest institutions that there is, and, and it sits in a family um, of, of great institutions that have, have served um, this this country and and the broader community so well over the years the Atlanta University Center um, with with other HBCUs there all kind of there creating a, a large a large family of colleges and universities and and it was from there my father went to um, one of the schools he went to 
Clark Atlanta University. It was called Clark College then. And so I was actually, I had grown up with um, knowing everything about Clark College. And, and so I was on track to, to go to Clark College and actually was at a summer program uh, down there between my junior and senior years of high school. And one of my counselors graduated from Morehouse and was on his way to, uh, to dental school. And one day he took me over across the street, literally there were schools or, or across the street from each other. He took me over um, to Morehouse. And it was one of those experiences where um, everything just felt right about it when I walked onto that campus and um, from meeting um, some of the professors to some of the students that were around for the summer to just being there in that kind of environment and aura, um, it, it just felt right. And so um, ultimately I, I had to share with my father that um, I thought Morehouse was a better place for me than Clark. And true to, my, true to, to the man that my father is, um, he supported me all the way in that. I know it was tough for him not to see that, but um, not let me follow his legacy there, but but again, it was all in the family. So that that's kind of how I got to Morehouse, um, and and then just there, it um, I I majored in chemistry there. Um, again, kind of the, the love of the sciences and and um, wanted to be kind of pre med and a and a pathway to a medical school, and just had tremendous life experiences. I I, I say that's where I went into Morehouse, a boy, and 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 came out a man. We have a very diverse uh, audience in the on this podcast. Can you just give us a quick uh, illustration or, or naming of some of the illustrious graduates of um, Morehouse? Um, sure. Just just a short this. Sure, sure. Well, I think probably one of the most well known um, is uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And actually, you know, he came from a legacy um, um, of a family going to Morehouse as, as well. Um, We've had everything from leaders like that, uh, former uh, Mayor Maynard Jackson uh, of Atlanta, who transformed Atlanta in, in so many ways, a graduate of Morehouse College. We've had athletes, uh, Edwin Moses, the, the Olympic um, gold medalist hurdler. Um, we've had uh, arts and entertainment, uh, successful icons, uh, Spike Lee is a graduate of of Morehouse Samuel L. Jackson and um, many, many more from medicine to, to law, sports entertainment to some of the greatest preachers um, in the world have, have come from um, Morehouse. And so it is, uh, it's a school that has a lot of history, um, a lot of legacy to it, but also has a, a very true and real grassroots um, mission. And to my best friends today are, um, are, our folks that I met as a 18 year old starting Morehouse. In fact, I just saw some this weekend um, at a you know at, at an event. I I know I asked you just for a short list, so I, I I really recognize that there are many more that you could continue with. Um, I'm wondering now, in comparison to Morehouse, well, not to compare them, but just to think and reflect on your the difference in your experience when you decided to go to John Hopkins. Um, Johns Hopkins, um, which is, you know, has always been an innovative um, institution, particularly when it comes to medicine and public health. Uh, how did you choose that? And what do you consider to be the unique influence that Johns Hopkins had on you? Yeah, well, you know, one, one of the blessings I've had is that um, there have been people who have, who have gone before me and, and, and paved the way. And so there were um, 
there were actually two at the time, two graduates of Morehouse, uh, uh, a couple years ahead of me who who were at Johns Hopkins. So I went to to visit and uh, see them and see the the school and the university. And it was again another one of those feelings that, you know, check the boxes for for obviously the you know, superior academic um, institution and for preparation for a medical career. Uh, then it just felt right. And so that kind of led me to say this was this was where I should go for the next next uh, portion of my of my career training. Again, I was focused then. I was I was focused on medicine. Public health hadn't really come into a view for me then, but um, that was the the kind of the familiarity of people who've been there, and then going and seeing it, and walking on the campus, and meeting people, and then just going with that feeling that says, all right, this is a place where you you should be and could be and could do well. And you subsequently uh, became a clinician practicing actually providing health care directly to patients. So can you tell us what your specialty was and, and what uh, period of time you worked at the, as a clinician? Pediatrics, uh, general pediatrics, my um, clinical specialty. And, and, and I got introduced to pediatrics there at Johns Hopkins, Frank Oski, um, one of the uh, was chairman of pediatrics, one of the great leaders in the field of pediatrics, and author of one of the, the well-known textbooks in pediatrics was there at the time. Um, and but it was also at Hopkins where I, I became um, familiar with and introduced to public health. The School of Public Health was literally across the street from the School of Medicine, uh, and I went across there one day um, and kind of opened up a whole new world uh, for me. And suddenly, I understood and realized that this idea of, of population health. And so that created an interest for me beyond the clinical practice of medicine, um, but policy involvement in large scale change that happens from um, operating from a kind of public health and, and, and policy perspective. And that kind of then really was where my career was shaped in pediatrics as a clinical specialty, fell right in with that and made sense to me and when you deal with children, it's so much of it is anticipatory guidance, looking forward and preventative in terms of the care and, and, and health. And again, that's kind of the foundation in many ways of, of public health as well. So the two really fit nicely for me. You, you became Secretary of Health in Pennsylvania for 2000, in 2003. As Secretary of Health, how did, how did you go about setting forth your priorities and goals, and then trying to implement them. And specifically, in, in, I want you to talk about the Department or, of, of Equity or Health Disparities that operated under your supervision while you were Secretary of Health. Sure. Well, you know, in, in a position like that, it's an appointed position. So you serve at the pleasure of the chief executive. In this case, it was the governor. So so in the in the larger sense, the, the priorities were the governor's priorities and each of the agency heads, you know, works to to address the governor's priority. But that said, again, that's the kind of the big picture umbrella. There are obviously certain aspects of there that that need to be dealt with in the public health. Um, Department of Public Health in, in Pennsylvania at the time really had uh, a broad purview, uh, both in terms of kind of promotion of health and and prevention of disease, but also in terms of of, uh, of regulatory um, and overseeing kind of uh, the patient care aspects of of managed care organizations and um, being the regulator and licensor for all uh, acute care hospitals and 
um, nursing homes and care facilities. And so had a very broad purview in, in that way. And then at the time, that was um, shortly after uh, 9-11. And, and so obviously your priorities um, come from um, both the, the population that you serve and you had, you know, 12 and a half million Amer uh, Pennsylvanians that we were responsible for protecting the health and promoting the health for, as well as very specific and regulatory roles and responsibilities as, as well. And, and one of the things that, um, that, you know, that is a foundation of, of public health and, and health, again, as I said, is, is prevention and, and using data to, to help um, understand kind of the, the world in which we live and, um, and ways to help make the population um, healthier and, and better. And so, and raise the quality of, of both care and, and life for individuals. And, and you can't help but see by looking at, at data around that, that there were disparities. And so you know, that kind of created the foundation for one of clear priorities to say, you know, when you look at various groups and, and there's so many ways to divide populations into groups, um, whether it's by age, whether it's by gender, whether it's by race, whether it's by uh, socioeconomics, whether it's by geography. There's so many different ways. And when you look and, and slice the information and data in, in so many of the ways, um, they show disparities. And when consistent disparities um, show that, that demonstrate that um, one or another particular group crosses multiple of those categories, um, and it clearly is affecting their health status and health outcomes, then um, kind of drives your priorities in those directions. And so addressing health disparities um, became a very clear and almost easy um, kind of point to, to, um, to focus on and, and set as a clear priority. What strategies or programs did you identify and attempt to implement in order to reduce health disparities? It's almost pretty basic. The, the first part we, we found really was really raising awareness and helping to clearly define and articulate what health disparities were and meant and what they looked like and, and putting a, uh, a, a face, a name, uh, a life, livelihood to it. And, and, and you mentioned the, the Office of, of, of Health Equity, and that was um, something that, that we started during that time. Um, it became one of the governor's initiatives um, as a part of his overall health care reform plan uh, as well. And that gave a, a focus um, and a base for really kind of beginning to coordinate um, the efforts once we kind of de defined and raised, began to raise awareness, it also began to give a, a point of focus to really um, programmatically uh, to address very specific points and issues of, of disparity, whether they be uh, infant mortality, whether it be heart disease, uh, whether it be violence, um, and, and in particular gun violence, they're all, again, the data, you know, the, the data tells the story very clearly and points you to where the clear differences and disparities are and how they result in, in very disparate um, outcomes for people's health and well-being. So now there's always the challenge of 
of uh, once you have set a goal and a priority like that of, of of getting the best out of the professional community and the institutions in the community as well as community leaders and community members. Um, so did you develop or learn anything with respect to things that work, for example, funding of certain types of organizations or direct care for certain types of populations? I'm just probing the outside. You know, the, yeah, the, I think I learned a lot. Um, and I, I probably, I, I probably can't remember all the lessons that, that I learned. They were so numerous, um, but, but nonetheless, extremely valuable. And one is that, you know, there, there are a lot of organizations and institutions, both grassroots um, and um, more, more traditional and, and established that who, whose infrastructure um, actually can lend itself to, um, to and, and really benefit the, the implementation of, of, of programs, efforts, initiatives, um, and help with the sustainability, because that's, that's a piece that, um, that is often very elusive in terms of many of the, the efforts that are made to, um, to change things or in, improve um, uh, aspects of life or address issues is the sustainability. And so, so tapping into the, um, the, the infrastructures that exist as, as well as you know, the, um, the, 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 the foundations of, um, of, of both established and new organizations is, I think I found to be very important and in fact vital to both a credibility, establishing a credibility and, um, and making progress in terms of efforts. You know, many, many, the many organizations that existed long before I, I became health secretary in Pennsylvania who were doing all kinds of in, in, incredible work. And so part of the opportunity and success is really just supporting, uh, finding ways to support, encourage, and help those kinds of existing organizations, um, as well as providing opportunity for um, for new and fresh organizations and ideas to to come to the forefront. So it it really comes down to, um, I think, respecting what exists, um, connecting with 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 what exists, and creating those relationships that help to take the, the best of what, what does exist and infuse it with new information, new ideas, um, new energy, and move it, move it that much further. The question that I want you to, to give us your thoughts on or the role of safety net hospitals and the impact that the closing or the reduction in the services available in, in urban and rural areas um, of safety net hospitals um, and what your thoughts are about what we need to do to address those issues. Well, you know, when you think about it in some ways, the, the fact that we even have or need something we call safety net hospitals speaks to the vast and, and ongoing disparity that, that exists in terms of access and, and care. What, what, is it, what is a safety net hospital, just in case some members of the audience don't, are not familiar with it? 
Yeah, the, the idea of the safety in the hospital is just that think of think of a a, a tightrope walker in in the circus and walking on that thin thin wire up there and and what's but what's below them is a big broad um, wide net the length of the wire so if they fall they're caught by the safety net so if you kind of fall from from the platform or fall from the wire or fall from um, the greater heights, there's something there to, to, to catch you. And so in the kind of safety net hospital realm, these are the hospitals where um, those who who wouldn't be able to get care or access care anywhere else um, will get their care. And often it's it's late in the stage of illness. Um, and, and so you see the sickest, those are the hospitals that are there for the sickest of the sick. Um, but if you... If you have the ability, whether it's the the income or the wherewithal, um, to to do and go elsewhere, the 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 idea and thought is that you go elsewhere to other other hospitals, um, and this even in again even in that construct, it it speaks to and and uh, perpetuates this idea of of a disparity. Now that said, some of these hospitals that are deemed safety net hospitals are are places where you have some of the, the most talented and gifted um, physicians and, and nurses and other healthcare providers. And so it, it doesn't speak to always the, the quality of, of the individuals who provide care there, but sometimes it does speak to the, um, the availability of resources that they have, those individuals have with which to, to work and, and care for individuals. I don't know if you follow this in any detail, but Hanneman Hospital, one of the main uh, safety net hospitals in Philadelphia, uh, closed before the pandemic. And uh, I'm just wondering if you have any sense of what impact that had on patient population that depended upon those types of services from that kind of an institution. Yeah, I, I hadn't I haven't followed it as closely um, as I have other closings in Philadelphia earlier and, and other places, but I suspect that the, the story is relatively the same is that there is, you know, that there is a population who that consists of a relatively high percentage of, of un, un or underinsured individuals. And so um, the reimbursements for the care that's provided uh, is, um, and often the care again is being provided to people who are um, are sicker and so coming in higher acuity because they, for various reasons, they haven't had access. And so whatever condition that they are there to be treated for has uh, been unattended for extended periods of time. And so it's more advanced stage disease or more complicated disease. And so the cost of care is higher and yet reimbursements are less. And so it becomes that kind of vicious cycle. And so when a place like that closes, it's that those individuals then are once again uh, faced with a, a barrier to access to care. Um, Philadelphia itself is is um, is a is a metropolitan area that, unlike many others in the country, does not have a um, a single safety net hospital or a kind of public hospital as it's called. And so, various private hospitals um, have taken on and received a significant. Um, um, 
higher percentage of of those kinds of individuals who again who have higher burden of disease and more severe more acute disease and so when a hospital like that closes ultimately at least some of them seek care and will connect to care in other places and so it just increases um, the the percentage of of higher acuity um, on under underinsured individuals that go to um, go to other institutions and and typically there are two or three institutions in, a, in an area like that that will you know that that again increase the um, that, that take on that capacity so then uh, what should we do about it dr. Johnson people say that um, you know money doesn't solve everything uh, but money does solve some things and so, um, the cost of the, the cost of healthcare for a lot of reasons is um, is high in in our country. Your your care may have uh, been neglected for um, for an extended period of time for lack of access, for lack of availability, for other life priorities um, that um, that have have caused you as an individual to you know to make decisions. Um, about your health that make it secondary to to, tra- to transportation to get to work so that you can provide for your family and put food on the table and things like that and so so um, so a commitment and a willingness and then when I talk about that I, I'm talking a lot of ways about kind of the, the, the political will and and this is where um, you know, this is where the more things change the more things stay the same in, in so many ways that you know it, politics, which is one of the aspects of um, that attracted me to health policy, quite frankly, um, is something that that is, is cyclical in so many ways and um, and and plays a real a, a real role in the daily lives of people, even though sometimes you know when it's time to vote, we don't always think about that, uh, but many of us do think about that that it is real. and so a political will um, of when when budgets are being made uh, and decided upon, and what are priorities in terms of what needs funding, um, those are issues and decisions that really can have a real impact on what ultimately uh, turn into broad disparities or um, can help eliminate disparities. And 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 the money in, uh, in itself, what does that mean? It, well, that means. Um, Funding that helps to train providers um, who um, are are able and willing and desirous to um, care for um, complicated uh, conditions in uh, in you know in urban areas, for example, or complicated conditions in rural areas, because disparities exist, as I said before, in ge- their geographic disparities as well, and so you know. We have, and that's one of the things I learned in Pennsylvania. We had a country that's a state. I'm sorry, that's that was 80% rural by geography, and so there are vast areas of the state that don't have easy access to um, healthcare. And so, conditions people can allow conditions to get worse um, and 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 more complex as because they don't have the ability to um, to leave their work to go travel a far distance to get care. So their funding and allocation of resources in strategic, meaningful ways really can help and begin to, to address 
um, those kinds of issues as as a starting as a starting point. So you mentioned politics, and we know how deeply it affects uh, allocations of resources, and not clearly demonstrated by what's going on now with respect to vaccines, etc. One of our most distinguished members of our steering committee, Dr. Augustus White, um, who's published a number of books, but is, 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 is consistently arguing that we, in order to solve this problem, we need to politically characterize health care as a human right. Do you see that as something that you would concur with? And is it impractical or practical that we would one day achieve that in the United States? So you asked a lot of questions there. So let me let me let me see if I can answer all of them. Um, so healthcare um, as as a a human right. You know, I, I think I do believe that that everyone deserves to have the opportunity for health and wholeness. Um, and and so if you know if we characterize you know um, uh, and I said this step more into kind of your realm, um, Frank, and others that, and outside of mine, but when you think about kind of the, what this country is, is, is based upon and, and, you know, the pursuit of, of, you know, of, of health and happiness and, and a full life. And I know I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, when you put, when you, when you lay it as a found, a societal foundation, then you essentially are articulating that there are certain there are certain um, rights and uh, and one's opportunity to to be healthy is one of those. Now, what one does with the rights that they're given and the opportunities that they're given is is another story. But everyone should have, I believe, that opportunity. Um, and in the way that our our system exists today, everyone doesn't have that opportunity. Um, and so, if if you're one that that believes in in fairness. Um, and an opportunity, then I, I think it's hard to argue uh, against that. So from a political and social point of view, um, one of the challenges that we have, I think, is that when we start talking about access and universal access, uh, a, a lot of times um, opponents tend to stigmatize the vulnerable populations that we're trying to assist and help members of the public and in, in, in voting public or people or political activists um, oppose it primarily because they don't see the individuals who are being excluded as worthy of the kind of public resources that will be required to help them. Stigmatization um, comes from, in my view, um, a combination of fear and ignorance. Um, and, and, and I'm not saying that in a pejorative sense at all, but, you know, but you, but you don't know someone until you know them. You don't know someone's story until you've, you've heard it and been willing to listen to it. Um, and so, so, but, but, but we have, we have, but when one has a fear of things different than oneself, um, has a fear of 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 what that means or understanding it, um, and and lacks a desire or willingness to to learn about it. I mean, there's 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 no harm in learning 
right? Because then you can you can still form your own opinion and say that's not for me, or decisions say that's not for me, um, or I don't like that. But but without that openness and willingness, it it that that fear and that ignorance really leads to that kind of stigmatization. And so 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 it it blocks progress, right? It it blocks progress. It blocks change. It blocks improvement. So and that's why we keep having these same conversations, right? Access to care for certain groups of individuals um, was an issue 25 years ago. It's still an issue for those individuals today. And it's not because we aren't smart enough or innovative enough, um, creative enough to drive towards solutions or to do with the ultimate willingness um, and and again, uh, I think that 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 fear and ignorance are um, are the blockade to uh, that that willingness to um, to to improve ourselves and, and improve our condition. I, I do believe that rising tide, you know, raises all <laughs> raises all boats and ships. And so, um, me me doing better doesn't or you doing better doesn't diminish me. Um, it, it actually, it actually helped me. And, and that's the case with, that's been the case with healthcare for oh so long. You know, one of the arguments that I used to make going back to an earlier question that you asked around disparities was really the economic argument. Yeah, sure. You start, you may start with the altruistic argument. You may start with the compassion argument. You may start with, with the decency argument, but, um, but you shouldn't leave out the, the economic argument. And, and the fact of the matter is that, um, that, that the cost of care um, is paid by all of us. And, and again, the, going back to the data, the, the data shows that, um, that uncompensated care is, is ultimately compensated in one way, shape or form. And it, it comes from others. So ultimately, yeah, if, if I don't want to, to work towards support solutions that help to um, to move uh, the the cost of care for an individual um, to a lower to a lower cost of care by helping that individual to get in front of care earlier so that preventative efforts can be put into place that avoid costly illness or that early that earlier diagnosis that can lead to um, earlier treatment and less expensive treatment. What um, unique um, lessons did you learn in, to, in your efforts to provide equitable care to, to prisoners or people who are confined in correctional institutions? Well, well, you know, there's, there's a there's a great misconception I think about our our, um, our criminal justice system, and that is that that you know people that the one that that those people who are in the correctional healthcare system um, get get locked up and 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 go away, um, and they're and they are those people, and they're different than kind of these people. You know, there's a, there's only a small small percentage of people that ultimately are kind of locked up forever, um, and so most people go in, may serve time, and then they come back out. And so, what does that mean? That means that. Um, that the same people that are in the correctional system 
And from my perspective, it was a correctional healthcare perspective. So receiving care and uh, healthcare in the correctional system um, are same people that are going to be at some point um, receiving care and needing care in the community as well. And so when we think about it, literally, the, these are our neighbors. These, these are people that we share are in the same community with. Um, to me, that, that should hopefully kind of open up some eyes and perspectives, understand that there isn't this great dis distinction. And people are, the people enter into our correctional system, again, that's a whole nother conversation for, for many, many different reasons, some, some just, some unjust. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, again, that that is a cyclical system and people cycle in um, and and out of it, and so it behooves us to um, to to consider both chronic conditions and acute conditions, helping people to get the health care and have access to adequate health care that they need, because one way or another, um, we're going to pay for it, and and the we is you know those of us who are taxpayers. Um, the we is those of us who contribute to our community and live in our communities and are, are homeowners or those of us who um, who get ill ourselves, those of us who um, have have employment. So much of that is cyclical. And so um, what what happens inside in terms of oftentimes a healthcare perspective inside behind the walls in the correctional setting um, is in many ways a a mirror of what is outside in the community as well. And it just matters, it's just a matter of kind of the, the timing of when more is, one one is more relevant or in play than the other. And so, um, so us having a different perspective around that um, and understanding that, that there's a cost no matter, um, no matter where it's paid, um, our drive, collective drive, they want to be towards where would that cost be the less, the least, and 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 derive the greatest benefit for uh, for all of us. So, uh, Rolf, I wanted to give you an opportunity to ask questions. We're getting close to the end of our time, but I know you had a number of, I thought, really um, important questions about crisis management as well as critical thinking. And Rolf is uh, our director of. Um, these types of programs and gets to hear the views of a broad view of um, of uh, experts and commentators. So, uh, Rolf, would would you uh, offer some of the questions that you have at this at this point in time? Sure. Thanks, Frank. And um, it's been it's been really such a, a really fascinating discussion. And I know our our friends over at Morehouse College are going to want to share this podcast. <laughs> in fact, um, in fact, Dr. Daniel Dawes is. Uh, uh, who's at Morehouse now, um, uh, is a professor at Morehouse now, is, is speaking at our caucus, which is just coming up in a, in a few weeks' time. Um, so that's a timely mention. Um, but Dr. Johnson, you know, during the course of your career, you, you've been a, a decision maker in a number of medical emergencies. And I think those include um, hepatitis A outbreak, the opi opioid epidemic, and then more recently, safety of passengers during a COVID-19 pandemic. So um, I'm, I'm really curious to hear what you would say are some of the things that uh, you found in common with those emergencies. Wow, that's a, that's a great question, Rolf. Uh, I think, you know, one of the first things that comes to mind when you ask that really is, um, is, is information. 
um, and data. And I think that that's been, that's critical um, in any of those situations to really understanding um, what one is dealing with. I would say another that I found common between is, is really um, information kind of on the other side, going the other way, providing information. Um, one of the one of the most important lessons I, I learned is that um, that when um, when you're in a position to provide guidance and leadership, um, and that's what's being sought from you, um, if you leave a gap there, if you don't provide that in in the form of information, in the form of guidance, in the form of guidance, excuse me, um, that gap that gap will be filled. Um, and it, it may not be filled with, with accurate information. It may not be filled with good information or good guidance, but it will be filled. And so, um, and so um, transparency and, um, and, and willingness to, to provide information, understanding is, is, uh, is critical. I think in um, being able to, um, to, to manage uh, crises from from a number of, of different points. By and large, you know, people, I've found that people want to do the right thing uh, and, and they seek information to, to help them to be able to do that. And so, um, so pro providing that information, um, but also receiving that information and really um, letting objective information help inform one's decisions, uh, being data-driven in, in that respect. Um, is is important because what it does is it it takes um, it it takes in apropos of this conversation it, it can help take the the the, the bias um, uh, out of some critical decisions that need to be made in um, in in a critical moment and that applies to you know in and in the in the healthcare setting it applies in the public health setting it applies in um, kind of the the broader an emergency um, uh, management uh, arena that applies in in the business in the business sector as well. If we um, really allow ourselves to understand um, circumstances, situations, people, um, and and we can do it in a, and there's a qualitative way and quantitative way to to do all of that. I think we really do put ourselves in a better position to um, to solve. Uh, critical issues. So uh, I think you know being data driven in in how um, we we make decisions uh, and how we assess situations is is very important. That doesn't mean devoid of of compassion or the emotional uh, quotient side of it. My challenge to myself, which I would share to others, is to always continue to try and be uh, both balanced and transparent in how we look at problems and really drive towards solution. I don't believe that there's ever been a problem made that doesn't have a solution to it. Um, but it is that willingness, that openness to, um, to, to do it from an, and both an intellectual uh, and an emotional perspective, but also to do it collectively that really I think drives us towards, um, towards real solutions. So. Um, if there's any challenge that um, I would share with anyone, it's one that I share with myself uh, to continue to try and 
and be as um, as good a partner and, and collaborator as well as uh, as good and an and analyst and operator as as I can. Well, Dr. Johnson, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. We know it was a significant impingement uh, undertaking a new job as the global head of public health and chief medical officer at the Royal Caribbean Group, I'm sure, has a lot of problems waiting for you to address with your perspective. And we certainly appreciate your sharing this time with our audience and your insights. And you did not disappoint. It, it, it's, been a, it's been a pleasure. And um, thank you so much. Uh, and uh, hope we'll, we'll get to talk again sometime.